0: Welcome back to The Greatness Blueprint. Today, I'm joined by Elise Martindale. Elise is a colleague and a friend. She's an Idaho native. She lives in Boise with her husband and her two kids. She is passionate about fashion, about budgeting, and retiring early. Elise paid off her home in her 20s, became a net worth millionaire in her 30s, and is here today to give us some tips and tricks on financial success. Elise, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: I mentioned that you are a net worth millionaire. Can you tell our audience what that means?
1: Yeah, I don't make million dollars a year. Not even close to that. So even with my husband's income, we don't make a million dollars a year, but we've saved over time to where our assets minus our li- liabilities. So total assets are greater than a million dollars. So it's a net worth millionaire versus someone who makes a million dollars a year even someone who makes that much money might have a negative net worth depending on how they spend.
0: Yeah. And break that down for us a little bit, just in terms of some elementary concepts. So assets and liabilities, what does that mean?
1: Oh yeah. Assets are anything you own. So if you own your home, equity in your home would be an asset theoretically, because you could get access to that. You own it. Your car is an asset, albeit something that goes down in value, unfortunately investments are an asset. They're also smaller assets, furniture and things like that, which are illiquid. But then the liability side is anything you owe. That could be your mortgage, payment on a car, credit cards, student loans. So when you're looking at your net worth calculation, you want to take what you own minus what you owe, and then you get a number. And it's very unique actually in America to have a positive net worth, especially in your 20s and 30s.
0: Yeah, that's incredible. And so what led you to that level of financial success early on? Because if I think back to my early life, I didn't think about finances. I didn't think about budgeting. It's not something you're born with, right? So what about you in your 20s was different? And what strategies did you deploy to kickstart you on your journey faster than most would?
1: Well, I don't think I was special. I think I made some really dumb decisions, I'll say that. I look back to when I had just graduated college, I was working as a teller, making $10.50 an hour, so not very much. I wanted to buy a new winter coat. And I remember walking by North Face and being like, oh man, I love North Face. I made $10 an hour. North Face is $250 coats, right? But I had my credit card, I'd never put, and literally never used my credit card, it was only for emergencies per se. I went in there, found a coat I loved, bought it for $250. I think it took me two years to pay that thing off. So I made some really dumb decisions. I should have gone to a thrift store and bought a coat there and lived in that for a while until I was making more money or had saved up some money. But instead, I put it on a credit card and paid interest on it for two years while I paid it off. So I made some really dumb decisions. I had a really good foundation. My dad's a banker. My mom's an accountant. So naturally... I think I was lucky in that we talked about finances regularly. Money wasn't something that was hidden or secret. It was very out in the open. When I was 10, my dad, I had saved up $30 in my allowance and we put it in two stocks. We put it in Ford and First Security Bank, which no longer exists. Every single day we would check the stock price. I think I'd only bought like three or four shares because it was $30 but I check the stock price and then calculate out how much it was worth. In two months, I doubled my money, which I think wow. is the first time ever, right?
0: Yeah.
1: I, it was beginner's luck. I've never done that again. But that was really eye-opening to me to look at it and be like, I didn't have to mow the lawn for that money. I didn't have to do dishes for that money. I didn't have to fold laundry. Like, it just grew. So that was magical. So I had that foundation. My parents are very financially savvy. They're both retired, but they lived very frugally, and then were able to retire fairly early, just around 60, and are having a blast. So I think I had really good role models. But in my 20s, I made a lot of mistakes. And I recognized at about 24, 25, that if I kept doing what I was doing and using my credit card to support this lifestyle that I couldn't actually afford, I was going to be in trouble by the time I was 30. So it was a wake-up call.
0: So how did you go from the bank teller, buying these nice coats on credit to decide that, hey, you know what? I want to pay off my home in my 20s.
1: Yeah. I found Dave Ramsey, who I love. I don't think his approach is for everyone, but definitely for me in my 20s, it really spoke to me. Dave Ramsey's whole goal is that you save up an emergency fund, which is a $1,000, really basic emergency fund. And then you, baby step number two is you pay off all your debt. So student loans, credit cards, cars, anything non-mortgage debt. You do whatever you can. You get an extra job, cut down on going out to eat on the weekends. You do whatever you can to pay off that debt as quickly as possible. And then there are steps beyond that. But that was my goal. Once I found him, I I think I read his book and did his class about 23, 24. I, I saw the future and I saw how that could take me further than what I had been doing previously, which was like throwing some money at it, but not really making a dent. The week before I was married, actually, I took out every penny out of my checking account. I think I had like $51 left and paid off the last of my student loans, which I think had like an outstanding balance of $1,000. But that was my goal was to get married without debt. So it was not easy. I ate a lot of things I didn't really want to eat, like <laughs> Tuna. <laughs> to be able to make that work but yeah it really spoke to me and it just painted a path that I thought was really appealing and also really unique because not many people do this and I was really obsessed with being not financially stupid anymore and so I felt mm. like this was a good way for me to, to be not stupid
0: you mentioned you you did that right before you got married how did that conversation with your husband now? Go, right? Was he in line with the Dave Ramsey approach? Did you have to get him on board? Was it something you did together? I know finances yeah. within relationships are, are tricky, right?
1: Yeah. Number one cause of divorce is finances. Yeah. yeah it went really poorly.
0: <laughs> he couldn't buy all his fur coats, right?
1: Yeah. He's a fur, fur coat monger. It went really poorly. He reacted, probably my approach was probably rough, to be honest. I mean, let's be fair. If Dave Ramsey's a cult, like I was all in, right? Like I was w- ready to drink the Kool-Aid. So my approach was probably a little harsh, but finally we got on the same page where it was really about being able to dream together. So for us, we have our accounts are combined. We don't have a separate account thing. We don't have a you pay for water and I pay for electricity type of thing. Everything's combined. And what that's meant for us is that we are able to dream and plan together. When we make a big decision, buy a new vehicle, whatever it is. It's together. It's not a, can your income afford it or can whatever it is, right? It's all combined. I get a bonus. We talk about, what are we going to do with that bonus? Sometimes we do something fun. Sometimes it goes to kids education, right? And so it's all, everything is combined in that. And so once we were on the same page pre-marriage, I think we were, I don't even think we were engaged at this point. We went through the Dave Ramsey class together He was a little skeptical. He got on board, understood the vision and was able to see what it could do for us. And then he actually went even more (laughs) extreme than I did. Annoyingly so, because now he's more extreme than I am. And so he holds me accountable, which is very annoying. But he went more extreme and did the same thing and paid off his truck before we got married, I think a couple months before. But Um, that alignment early on was so critical. And I knew it was honestly like a do or die situation. If we could not get on the same page with finances, this wasn't going to be the guy I was going to marry. It was that important. So,
0: Yeah, it seems like it's something that you're so passionate about. And if you look at, like you said, marriage's divorce rate being the highest for financial decisions, Mm -hmm. do you think that most people just maybe don't even have a budget and therefore the finances are always this topic because it's out of the control of both individuals in the relationship. And if you're able to take a step back, budget together, create this plan, whatever the plan is, right. Then it allows for more safety and that not to be a sticking point in the relationship.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. To take it back a little bit. The reason I'm so passionate about personal finances is one: I'm a big nerd which you know, but two, it's something that impacts everyone. everyone's gonna to have to face it, whether they want to or not, but not everyone is taught about it or hears about it or knows anything about it. So I can get around in life not knowing how to program a computer, and I'm probably gonna be fine, right? i'm that's not going to impact my success. You can't be successful in life at least financially without knowing a little bit about it. You can stumble your way into debt all you want. You cannot stumble your way out of it. You have to have a map. And so I don't think it's talked about enough. I don't think couples probably talk about it enough, probably because they're all insecure about it, as I was early on, because you don't know what you're doing and you know you should be smart about things. You should be putting it in a budget, but you don't. I think that's what one of the fallacies people have around budgets is, budgeting isn't to say, I cannot spend money. It's actually to give you permission to spend money on what you want to spend it on. So I want to budget in clothing every month. I love clothing. I love buying clothing. I love having money to buy clothing. So that is a line item in our budget. And it allows me to spend that money. Otherwise, every time I'd be like, oh, I feel so guilty. I shouldn't be spending this. But it's a line item in our budget. And so I know every month, That's what I get to spend. So it gives me permission to spend. And I think that a lot of people don't realize that about budgeting. And then when it comes to the marriage piece, I don't want to give a blanket statement here, but I'm guessing because it's not openly spoken about in general, probably wasn't spoken about much at home. And therefore people don't know how to approach it when they're looking for a partner because they didn't see their parents talking about it.
0: It's you grow up in a family where... There isn't a budget. Maybe your parents used credit to go on family vacations. Mm -hmm. And so you see that and that's what you know, and you do the same thing. Mm -hmm. You put things on credit, you get in debt and you never are able to get your feet under yourself. And so I think what you did where you had a foundation, but you also from your parents, you then learned through using credit and said, wait, this isn't where my values, my family values are. You took the initiative to go take the class learn about a new strategy and then action that in your life i think that's powerful and i don't think a lot of people take that last step to to take the action and then put it into play
1: i mean it's the hardest part honestly it's not knowledge it's all the action you take i have a degree in economics i know about finances i still bought that coat on credit it's all about behavior it's not about knowledge
0: and i think part of what people face is they know that budgets exist, but they don't know the practical application of how to budget. What does that look like? And how do they make it easy for themselves to understand where their money is going and where it's coming in? So from your experience, what are some of the systems or tools or even just behaviors that you've used to make budgeting a part of your everyday life and not overly burdensome for you and your family?
1: Yeah, I'm all about lowering the barrier to entry with all this stuff. Even though I'm a financier, I don't enjoy filling out a budget. That's not what I want to be doing. I want to be spending the money. You have to do it once and it's going to be incredibly painful. The first time you do it, you project out what you think you're spending money on. So you're saying, okay, I think it's $750 for groceries a month. I think we spend $200 on gas, right? So you lay it out. And then you tally that up and it's $2,500, whatever it is, right? And then maybe you're bringing in $3,000 a month. So now you have $500 to say, okay, what do we need to do with this? Does it go to the kids college fund? Does it go to savings? Does it go to saving up for a car whatever it is? But you have to have it on paper or in an Excel file or written down visibly. It can't be in your head, but it has to be written down visibly. And you have to do the math. Understand where the money's going or where you think it's going to go. So you do that beginning of the month. At the end of the month, you see how right you were or how wrong you were. And usually you're very wrong. The first time we did it, we were off hundreds and hundreds of dollars. We way overspent on groceries, we way overspent on eating out. And so you have to adjust it and say, okay, well, I thought I was spending $2,500. I'm actually spending $2,800. And then, or thirty-two hundred dollars, worst case scenario, and you're going into debt two hundred dollars a month, right? So then you adjust it to your actual spending. Try that again for another month, and now you've got it locked in. And I would say the actual amount of time we spend budgeting each month is two hours max. We've done this now for years, so we can actually go back to last August, last September, and say, "Oh yeah, we forgot we." always spend money on back to school things so we need to budget 150 dollars extra for back to school items and we always forget about dance class so you start really honing it in after that third month specifically so you do really poorly the first month then you do a little bit better and then you do a little bit better and then it gets faster and faster and faster but you have to push through that early time because it's really painful and you also have to decide as a couple like what are you spending your money on and if you're not married it's really great, especially if you have some really maybe intense financial goals. You need to be held accountable. It's great to have an accountability partner. You talk through the budget with them. You update them. You say, hey, I'm really blue at this month on XYZ. Here's what I'm going to try to do next month. And they are able to encourage you and hold you a little bit accountable to the numbers you're putting on paper.
0: Yeah. Yeah. so the first step is obviously getting it down and tracking the first initial month right you Mm -hmm. see where you're spending in these different categories the next step is then saying all right here are the goals how do you marry the initial budget to your forward-looking goals and as those goals change what are some of the things you do within your budget to make it easy and flexible to modify the budget or do you do you build that flexibility into start
1: there shouldn't be flexibility in the budget. What I mean by that is once it's done, it's done. That's what we're spending this month. The flexibility is in deciding where the money's going at the beginning of the month. And what the reason is, because you don't want to get halfway through the month and you're like, oh, I kind of let loose and I spent an extra $100 here and there and there, right? You don't want that. That's the opposite of discipline. The flexibility lies when you're determining the budget each month you're saying, what are our goals for this month? Okay, it's paying down our car a little bit more. So we're gonna try and get extra $200 toward the car payment. Where is that $200 going to f- come from? Well, we're not gonna go out to eat as much, right? And so you have to, it's this give and take, and you have to talk through, okay, what are we going to be adjusting down or up based on what this month look, looks like? Christmas, December, for example, always a terrible budgeting month we always trash the budget. We start out with great intentions, but that's a month where if you know you're going to have quite a bit of spending, maybe that's not the month where you're going to put extra on the car payment or the credit card. And so you just have to, I mean, life happens. You have to be looking at those things, holding yourself accountable as much as possible, but being realistic in what you're doing. One of the things that I did wrong early on with my personal budget when I was single was... I think I'd only planned for $40 a week on groceries. Totally unrealistic. That is absolutely not what I spent or ate. I would blow it out of the water every single month and then be like, whoa, what's happening? Like, I can't pay off my credit card. I was just being unrealistic. I thought I could pay off more and I couldn't. And so that that was just how, where the income landed. So you have yeah. to be really realistic with it and be, hold yourself accountable, but not be so restrictive that it becomes something that's really you hate versus something that's supposed to be empowering.
0: But the purpose of a budget is to help you achieve your goals,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? So if you have something down in paper and let's say you're hitting your budget every month, but you're not saving towards maybe buying a new car or putting a down payment on a house, you're not really achieving your achieving your goal. So how do you sync up... Mm-hmm your budget with with the goals you're looking to achieve and from your experience is there an appropriate maybe percentage for people to target different types of line items to allow them for to reach their goals
1: yeah that's a good point if you're targeting really aggressive financial goals so for example paying off a house you have to be realistic about the goal based on your budget and what i mean by that is if you have a $100,000 mortgage, you're not going to pay it off next month, no matter how hard you budget, right? You could have a really stellar budget, you're not going to pay it off next month. So you have to do the budget and say, okay, what's the, you know, the least we can spend on or a reasonable number we can spend on kids clothing this month, and then eating out, maybe we reduce eating out. So you do all your numbers and you're left with an extra $1,000. And you're like, I we really think this is a reasonable, doable budget. It's aggressive, but it's not draconian. Okay, now we know we have an extra $1,000 a month to put toward, toward the house. Well, then project out, if I put $1,000 a month on the house and I have $100,000 left, that's when you're going to hit your goal. If you want to be more aggressive, you're going to have to tighten down, screw down that budget further maybe you can get $1200 out of it. Okay, great. Then project out. Okay, that's, you know, 10 years versus 12, whatever it is, that timeline. But you have to be realistic in your goal setting and your timelines based on what your budget can allow you to do.
0: So maybe a different way to look at it would be to say you have to work backwards, right? You start with these are all of the basic necessities, the the bills that I have to pay every month. Mm-hmm. Here are some of the nice-to-haves, and part of that could be groceries. You might be shopping at Whole Foods, getting the nicest organic quality things. Maybe you scale that back a little bit. You shop at Winco for a month, and that's where you squeeze a couple hundred bucks out. And then now that you have that final pool, you then take that final pool and allocate it towards your different goals that are a little bit more forward-looking. But starting and working backwards from the basic foundation, which you have to spend every month some of those things that maybe are a little bit variable depending on some inputs and things that you can control. And then that leaves you a small allocation to to put elsewhere.
1: Yep. Yeah, that's exactly right. You're not going to, again, you can stumble into debt very easily, but you cannot stumble out of it. So you have to have that plan. So if the plan is pay off the car first, okay, well, we know we can squeeze an extra thousand dollars out a month. Car is $7,000. That's what we have left on the loan. In seven months, we're done. And then in seven months from now, we're going to come back and say, okay, our next priority is we're going to increase what we are putting in for retirement. So that's going to take us down an extra $500 a month. That $500, $250 is going to go to college savings. $250 is going to go towards the house. But without yeah. that budget, none of those goals get accomplished.
0: Right. And as people start to pay off debt, right, because many, many folks have debt and... What would you say to them about where they should prioritize or strategies that they can use to pay off that debt more quickly and eliminate as much interest as possible on some of these high interest rate debts, whether it's credit cards, student loans, mortgages, et cetera?
1: The interest rate thing actually doesn't interest me that much. I think Susie Orman or something says put your debt from highest interest rate to lowest and then pay off the highest first. If you're really hitting it hard, you're gonna pay off debts fairly quickly. And what I mean by that is, when I started paying off my debt, I had two credit cards and my car. My car was my largest. So I put them in order of actual size, which is the Dave Ramsey method. So it was two credit cards, car, student loans. So I paid off that credit card first and I got a little bit of momentum, right? And that was important feedback for me. I don't even know what the interest rate on it was, but it probably wasn't very good. It's probably very high paid that off, paid off my next one. I think I had $2,500 on that one that took longer, but I could see the progress. Right. Every month I was taking a chunk out of it. When you focus on interest rates, the problem with that is you might be putting a student loan at the top, the first one you're going to pay off, that's $100,000. You're not going to see that thing gone for maybe two years. Right. So your ability to see and feel progress is going to be very limited. It's very hard to do something when you're not getting any positive reinforcement. So I really like it for size, right? Smallest to largest, you get that early, quick win, and then it gives you momentum to snowball into the rest of them. When we're talking about credit cards a lot of the times the credit cards are the first one on the list anyway, because the balance is 10k and the student loan is 100k. So you're going to pay that one off first anyway. So the interest rate doesn't really matter. Even when you get into which one to pay off, you could pick if they're really close. If you have 10,000, 11,000, just pick the one with the highest interest rate. But when you do the math, we're talking maybe a few hundred bucks difference, right? We're not talking about thousands of dollars that you're going to be losing between paying those all off. So,
0: Yeah. If you're truly dedicated to paying off the debt and you're putting down larger chunks and just the minimum payments, Mm the interest rate shouldn't theoretically matter.
1: You're going to punch that thing down so fast that you won't even think about it afterwards.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So pay off your debt. Once you pay off your debt, you then have this budget that allows you to focus more on your goals. And one of your philosophies and one of the key takeaways from today is money gives you options. So tell us what that means to you.
1: Yeah, this is actually for my parents. Um, so the way it came about is my dad got leukemia when really aggressive form in, gosh, 2009, I think. So I was a junior, senior in college. And my both my parents were still working, but they had saved very religiously for their entire working life. So they had retirement, they had their home paid off, they had a emergency fund buffer. But even with all of that, he had gone through a bunch of chemo, a bunch of radiation. And because of the chronic nature of this disease, the only option to really save his life was to do an experimental, I think it was stem stem cell transplant in Seattle. So they had to go live in Seattle for six months. And the only way you could even get into the door to talk to a doctor about this experimental treatment was to have $60,000 in cash. So you had to literally just have, show them, I have this money to give you to get this started. I don't think a lot of people could come up with that. They were lucky enough where they had their emergency fund, they actually, I think, liquidated one of my mom's um, IRAs, took the penalty there. To But they, had, they were able to put together that money within weeks. Pretty unique, but that saved my dad's life. So that stem cell p- transplant ended up being successful. And ultimately, he's been in remission for, gosh, 14 years now. But without that, without that $60,000 just to enter the door, he'd be gone. So it gave them options beyond what was just in front of them.
0: Yeah, that's incredible.
1: I know that's an extreme example, but I think there's even with basic things, if you are living paycheck to paycheck, the likelihood that you're want to, going to want to risk taking a new job, moving to a new city to take a new job, something that maybe could change your life for the better and could set your t- trajectory off on a really cool, interesting course The likelihood you're able or willing to do that when you have all this financial stress in your mind is pretty low. If I'm broke, I'm not probably not going to move to a new city or you can't get out from under your mortgage or you can't sell your car because it's underwater, whatever it is. So again, having that mental headspace where you're not owned by your loans and what you owe others, I think just opens you up to different options in life that might not be available or you might not even have the energy to think about if all you're worried about is how am I going to get to the end of this month with $500 in my checking account, right?
0: Yeah. And you paid off all your loans. And so from your perspective, what does money gives you options mean for you in your family's life now? Where do you allocate those funds and what kind of options has it given you?
1: Yeah, let's see. Yeah, we paid off our house. I think I was 29. So I think I squeaked in. We paid off the house because we had our first kid, my daughter and my husband's job is 100% commission, always has been. So he has to go out and kill something every single day or he doesn't get paid. Um, And having a kid, it added a lot of fear that that instability within his work could lead to, can we pay the mortgage? And my job at the time was not enough to cover mortgage and everything else that comes with life, right? And so it was really a goal for us to just get into a better state where it would take some pressure off him. If he needed to leave his job, he could. If I needed to leave my job, I could. We wouldn't be cornered into this scenario where we're just trying to throw haymakers and fight our way out of this. And so we paid it off very aggressively. It was really not very much fun to be honest. We didn't almost nothing fun for two years straight. But what that meant is we have been able to put a significant amount of money into retirement every month. That's a big goal of mine. If you're not familiar with the financial independence retire early movement fire, that's basically the idea of retire early. Don't wait until you're 65 or 70 to have golden years. You could have your golden years much earlier when your health is still with you, when your energy is still with you, when you still have time with your kids. And so I think paying off our our loans early, paying off our house early has opened us up to this world where we might, if we'll see, knock on wood, we might be able to retire earlier than 60, 65, and now that's an option. If we didn't have our house paid off, if I was still charging coats on credit cards, that wouldn't be an option for us. It would just be month over month. What are we going to do? But because we've been able to open up some of our income to other things outside of debt, it's allowed us to look around and say, hey, maybe we retire a little bit earlier than we thought. Maybe we go on a longer vacation or our tenure we celebrate a little bit bigger because we've saved up this money and we have a little bit of room in the budget. So... Again, it just gives us options.
0: Sure. So you were able to pay off your house in two years. Is that correct?
1: Yeah.
0: And I would say that that's likely an uncommon option for people, right? Many people probably, even if they developed Mm -hmm. the same method that you Mm -hmm. used, wouldn't be able to pay it off that quickly. Mm -hmm. And so you said those two years were tough. Would you recommend this to other people to do the same if Maybe that horizon's not two years, but 10 years, and they're going through 10 years of struggle. Do you think that cost benefit is there?
1: Oh, yeah, that's a good question. For us, it was there because, again, we had mapped out our budget very aggressively, and we saw the end of the tunnel. We knew where it was at. I knew we weren't going to travel or buy. we didn't buy Christmas gifts for people. We didn't go out to eat. I didn't buy new clothing. It was pretty draconian, but we knew that that was a fixed period of time. I would not recommend that for 10 years. That's brutal. You're going to put way more stress on your marriage, on your really everything, on your relationships, everything. I would say if that's a goal, so say we want to pay off our house. Okay, what's realistic? And what's something where we can live comfortably and not lose 10 years of our lives to this thing. And although it's a great goal, I would not make 10 years of a whole lot of discomfort because those are really peak years, right? And I, I, yeah, I would just hate for someone to give that up. I would instead say, put in a little extra each month. Don't go with the whole 30-year thing. I think 30 years is way too long. You can definitely do it sooner. Maybe you can't do it two years. Maybe you can do it in 15 years. That's still way above average, right? Way sooner than most people. So set a realistic goal where you are not hating your life day over day just for this one financial goal. I'd also say the same thing. We were really focused on the house again. That was really unique to us and my husband's job and where we're at in life. If I went back again, we missed out on two peak years of throwing that money into retirement. Maybe I'd split it up more. Maybe I'd go more into retirement and kick out the timeline to pay off the house. So that's, yeah. everything's an opportunity cost.
0: Yeah, so instead of saying, I recommend other people pay off their house, maybe a better way to phrase it would be, I was able to do that because of my situation, but the underlying theme is we had a plan, mm-hmm. a plan that allowed us then to have flexibility. And so if others are listening, having that plan, whether it's the two year plan or the 15 year plan is going to allow you to have higher level of chance of success.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I am not, again, while I am a Dave Ramsey fan, I'm not prescribing David Ramsey to anyone. I would just say, have a plan, have any plan, any plan where you're reducing debt, increasing assets, you know, having a budget every month, anything in that realm you're going to be doing better than 90% of people anyway. You could go really extreme as I did and do all cash, no credit, no debt. You could go in the middle. But the biggest thing is just have a plan. Agree upon a plan. Stick to the plan. You'll be in 10 years, you'll be, you know, 20 miles further than most people, you know.
0: Yeah. You talked about Dave Ramsey a couple of times and I have a couple quotes from him. And then I want to hear your thoughts on his teachings and maybe other ways that he's impacted you. But the first one is debt gives you the ability to look like you're winning when you're not. And the second is a budget is telling your money where to go instead of wondering where it went. So tell us a little bit more about Dave Ramsey and and what you learned through his classes and how that's been a huge part of your life.
1: Yeah. For those of you who aren't familiar. So Dave Ramsey is all cash, meaning you have no credit cards, no lines of credit The goal is to have no mortgage. You pay cash for everything. So if you want a new car, you save up money and you pay cash for it. If you want a new boat, you save up money and you pay cash for it. It's the old school way of doing it. You know, it's only been in the last probably 60 years that credit cards have even really been a thing. And so I do 100% agree with him that debt lulls you into this idea that you're living a life you're not actually living and you don't actually own. It owns you. And I really hate that idea for people because I think it also leads to a real sense of instability and a lack of control. And you'll get to 60 years old and wonder where it all went, which which I just hate for people. I think that is would be a huge regret. So I absolutely agree with him. I think it, again, like it lulls you into this belief that you can afford that car. Or you can afford a boat because you can afford the payments, which is not the same thing.
0: Yeah. So if someone's looking to buy a car, right, and they need a car, what's the recommendation? What would Dave Ramsey say to them?
1: Well, oh boy, now I'm speaking for Dave. Dave, don't kill me if you're listening. He would say, so first off, what can you afford? What do you have saved? If you're driving a beater today and you're trying to pay off other debt, like your student loans, is there a real need to buy a new car or is it just a want? If it's a want, push it out further. If it's a need because it keeps breaking down, you're spending a ton of money on it, then save up enough money to pay for it. So find a car. My first car that I purchased was $7,000. It was a used, it was a 20-year-old used Mitsubishi Lancer that didn't even have a spoiler. It looked super lame. It was literally driven by a grandma, but I paid cash for it. And I was able to drive it up until a couple years ago. He would say, save up, find a used car, pay cash for it. With new car, never do a lease. A lease, you never win. The, com- the, uh, the company on the other side always wins. They have done the math. They have a million people making sure that they come out on top with those leases. You're not getting anything from them for that money. And then don't buy new if you can't afford it. If you can afford an $80,000 truck and affording it means you can't pay cash for an $80,000 truck, don't buy that truck. Find a used Ford for $25,000 and save up for that.
0: Yeah. And what I hear through that is that there are two sides of pain, right? You can pick the path of least resistance, get the auto loan. In this day and age, you can get a seven-year car loan and pay off a car over seven years, which is is crazy to me. Or you can say it's going to be tough. I'm going to have to drive this beer for a little bit. I'm going to save up the money, but then I'm not going to have to have that debt looming over my head. If I can't pay, they're going to take all the money that I put into this car away and tow it off back to the dealership. So there's two different camps, two different pains, and you have to pick which one is, is right for you.
1: And unfortunately, as humans, we're really bad at building the pain of risk into our calculation. So the pain of not having a new car seems greater to us than the pain of potentially losing that car in the future, right? Potentially declaring bankruptcy because we can't really say like, well, you know, like, what's the likelihood of that happening? Well, I mean, if you go back to 08 and 09, it's very high likelihood that that could happen, right? Like, that's the reality of it. So we're always assuming that the job we have today, the income we have today is just going to continue perpetually. And that's not the case. And as humans, we do a really bad job of forecasting out anything negative. So we think we're always going to have our job. We think we're always going to be able to pay, make all these payments, but that's just not the case. And so going into debt, you're taking that risk paying cash. You're removing that entire risk you own it outright. No one can take that from you.
0: Yeah. And, and I know this firsthand. My, one of my biggest financial blunders was two years out of college. I just got my first career job. I'm going to buy a one-year-old Jeep Rubicon, you know, $55,000 and I make $42,000 a year. Just absolutely ridiculous. Got hood, got hoodwinked by the dealer, the slimy dealership folks. But uh, it was one of those lessons that I had to learn myself. And yeah. I still drive that Jeep today, but it It took some time to pay off for sure.
1: Oh, that's a painful one. Wowzers.
0: Yeah, it was a bad one. So in terms of, you mentioned Dave Ramsey is all cash. Do you ever use credit or any type of leverage in anything that you do today?
1: Yeah, we use, we do use credit cards today. We don't use uh, loans on anything else. We use credit cards mainly because travel points. We pay them off every month, which I know is a lame excuse. Dave would hate me. But we've found that we have our budget locked in pretty well. It is credit cards are playing with fire. Like that, that's the reality of it. You are assuming you will be able to pay this thing off. The reality is I think 80% of credit card balances cross over to the next month. So 20% of people are paying them off month over month, 80% are not. So I do not recommend this strategy for a lot of people. Honestly, if I was single, I can't be trusted with a credit card. I would go to north face and i go buy another coat like it is that's just the reality and i understand that because we're married because i have that accountability partner because he sees absolutely everything i'm buying i know i I don't go outside of that budget right and same thing for him i will ask him questions if he goes outside the budget so we have that accountability which i think has lulled us into a belief that we can handle credit cards so we do have credit cards today we pay them off monthly But we don't get credit for anything else. So when we buy a new car, it's in cash. When we buy the camper sitting outside, it was in cash. And it means that we have to be very thoughtful about our purchases. There's no go to the dealership and, you know, find a really fancy car and be like, oh, yeah, we'll just buy it this weekend. There's there isn't that. We do have to plan things out very aggressively, I guess I would say. But again, there is no stress financially because of it.
0: So if you were to, let's say you needed to upgrade and get a bigger house, would you save up and and do the same thing you did?
1: Oh, no. Ago? Ideally, yes. So according to Dave Ramsey, the, a mortgage is the only thing that he is okay going into debt for. And the reason for that is it's a forced savings account. So if you think about you pay now, you pay a half million dollars for a home. You put 20% down, right? You're paying that off each month. And you're building equity theoretically 08 and 09 kind of being exceptional years where that didn't occur but in general it's a forced savings account where you're building up equi- equity at your as you're paying it off but his guidelines are only do 15 year so don't do these long 30-year mortgages and pay it off as quickly as possible not as aggressively as possible so that doesn't mean you know eat rice and beans and pay it off tomorrow it just means be putting extra towards that, so you don't have this really lifelong debt on your hands. And then also your payment should not be more than 25% of your take-home pay. And if anyone's been to a bank, you know that is not what the bank gives you. The bank is going to approve for you something much bigger than that. I think it's like up to 50%, which is just outrageous. That's not actually what you can afford. You don't want to be house poor. And so that's why that guideline is there. You don't want to move into a brand new house and not be able to buy furniture because Mm -hmm. you're broke and all your money is going to your payments. So there are a lot of pretty strict guidelines on that. 20% down, so you avoid PMI, less than 25% of your take-home pay and 15-year mortgage.
0: Yeah. I think people often forget that your mortgage is going to go up as property taxes go up too. So you have to take that into account, especially in the area like Boise where housing prices are increasing so steadily. That's true. So maybe that's a good segue into something we talked about a little bit earlier. You are a net worth millionaire, right? And some of that is tied up in the equity of the house you paid off. Now that you have this money, you're not just holding cash in the bank. You might have some for some of these strategies that you're deploying, but where else do you invest your money and what are the different ways you strategize around continuing to grow that nest egg for retirement
1: yeah we maximize our accounts i have a 401k at work so whatever the maximum i think it's twenty two thousand or something you can give each year we put that in we maximize my husband's we have an hsa so we're maximizing how much we can put in there a lot of these are tax tax strategies right so Mm -hmm. we're trying to reduce our taxable income is number one and also plan for the future we're also trying to very aggressively save for our our kids' education. So part of that is college. Part of it is also they go to a private school. And so we're trying to reduce the likelihood that we would have to move them out of that school if something happens to my job or his job, whatever it is. So we're trying to pay into that right now so that we can, if we have to in the future, we can take out of that fund and pay for their education. So college current education. We do have fun. Like we do have some fun money as well. We're going to take a big trip for our tenure, which we're going to pay cash for. And it's really nice to be able to plan for something and not feel guilty about it because we're put aside the money and we're going to pay for it up front. So it won't be hanging over us months after the trip is taken. But yeah, 401ks, retirement accounts. We also, anything extra, if we maxed out those things I was talking about, we also have a Separate investment management account, which we'll just put. That's taxable, so there's no tax advantage to that. But still, putting it in there, getting it into the market, getting exposure to the market, and hopefully seeing that grow over time.
0: Yeah, it sounds like you have a pretty well established plan and process around your investments as well. If somebody is, let's say, they just paid off all their debt and they're looking to get started into the investment world, what would you recommend?
1: Oh boy, well. First off, congrats on no debt. Secondly, I would say don't ever invest in something you don't understand. So I'm, I'm fairly smart. <laughs> I'm not the smart. I'm fairly smart. I don't understand whole life insurance. I don't understand how it's supposedly a savings account. I don't understand the tax advantages. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. I don't put my money there. I never have. Um, because it's very, it's too complex. I feel like someone's trying to pull one over on me. So don't invest in anything you don't understand. And when you look at that, it could be start with something very simple, a CD. I understand if I put my money in this bank for 24 months, they will pay me 5% at the end of it. Great. That's very simple. At least your money's doing something for you. During those two years, do some research, look up what is a stock? What does it mean if I buy a stock? I could lose money. So there's some risk there. What's a bond? What does it mean if I buy a bond? What's the risk there? So do the research to understand what there is available to you. And then also seek out someone who's a teacher. Maybe they're a financial advisor. Maybe they just are someone you really respect in terms of their finances, but seek out a teacher who's going to walk alongside you and say, Hey, this is something you should be aware of. This is something you should know you should have life insurance so that if you die, your spouse isn't left destitute with two kids to take care of. So seek out a teacher and then also seek to just slowly and patiently increase your knowledge around finances. And then every time you invest, for example, I've put my money into Starbucks before because I get it. I get their business, I get what they do every day because I buy a coffee, right? I enjoy it, I know that it's high quality. I never put my money in Bitcoin because again, I'm not that smart It doesn't make sense to me. I don't understand it and why it's an investment. So I can't put my money in it. And so just always invest in things you understand and find a mentor who can walk alongside you and give you some good tips.
0: And do you prefer the mentor kind of learning on your own route versus outsourcing that, say, to a financial advisor who owns that process entirely for you?
1: We have financial advisors. I do think there's a real value to them. However, even the word you used of outsourcing, it is still your responsibility to understand your money. You can bring in really intelligent people, but you better understand what they're doing for you because ultimately that's your money. At the end of the day, if they lose it all, they're gonna be like, I'm so sorry. We explained it to you. Maybe you didn't understand, but too bad. Like we tried, right? So you have to, I I would not abdicate responsibility of understanding a little bit about finances to someone else. I think that's a plan.
0: Yeah. Maybe giving them some of the control, but still understanding their overall strategy is important.
1: Yeah. And I still listen to them. They still do things on my behalf, but in general, I understand what they're doing. I understand their approach and I agree with it.
0: Yeah, I think that's important. So I know you recently read a book called Die With Zero. And a quote from that book is, what good is wealth without health? And I'm curious to know, after you read this book, did it change any of your financial philosophies and what you learned from reading that book?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, it did. I think I do love that quote. It did in that it removed some of my very intense beliefs that we need to be living as frugally as possible today so that we can theoretically retire at some point. I've walked that back a little bit and said, we still need to enjoy today. I'm not going to get back this time where both of us have our health. Our kids are young. They want to be around us. We get to hang out and spend time with them. These years are very precious and they go by very quickly. So I don't want to mortgage these years to have some unknown future retirement date that's maybe earlier than planned. Maybe not. Who knows? Yeah. So it has changed my thought process around spending some more money now on experiences on things that will add a lot of value to our life versus just trying to throw everything into retirement die with zero is very interesting i would recommend it to everyone i would recommend you read it my critique on that book is he is a multi multi multi-millionaire so this is not a poor guy (laughs) talking to you about money he's very rich and he can look at and be like well yeah of course like it's all going to turn out because I'm worth $300 million, right? So his life experience is just, I don't think, as relatable. I do agree with some of his points and I appreciate his worldview, but to say, just enjoy your time now, don't think about the future, I think is one of the most dangerous things you can do. If my parents had done that, my dad would be dead, right? I do think there has to be a balance of, yes, your health matters. Don't destroy your health for some wealth building goal that you have. But on the flip side, don't take away future health options because you didn't save today. There has to be some balance there.
0: Yeah. And I almost take it more as make sure you're enjoying the little moments in life and less so about spending all your money now on things that probably don't matter. You know, 30 years from now, instead saying, you know what, maybe I'll spend an extra hundred bucks today to take my daughter to the fair or to take her on a little, you know, fun day trip or something like that, but not necessarily going too overboard, maxing out your credit cards to travel to Europe, things of that nature.
1: Totally agree with that. But I do agree, you know, these days are precious, they are going by so quickly. I won't be able to go, like you said, we won't be able to go to the fair in 10 years because my kids aren't going to want to go with me. I'm going to be the lame old mom. They're not going to want to go with me. They're going to want to go with friends. So yeah, spending that money today is, is valuable. Yeah, and you
0: mentioned your kids and given some of your background with your parents and them helping you learn about investments and helping you buy those three, four stocks you had early on, tracking those in the newspaper. What are you doing to ensure that what you've learned and some of the philosophies that you deploy in your life are, are passed on to your kids, or at least they are aware of some of the things that you're you're doing.
1: I don't think I'm perfect at this. We're still learning as we're going. Our kids are young, but I guess we'll find out when they're in their 20s how well it's stuck. But number one, money is not a hidden thing in our family. If we're not going out to eat and the kids want to go out to eat, I will tell them it's not in the budget. We spent all the eating out money. We can't afford whatever pizza you want. And so we're just going to eat from home. So we're very open with the reality that resources are limited. We're also very open with the reality that work creates money. So when my daughter asked me to be a stay-at-home mom, when I, I explained to her, we have goals. I would love to spend more time with you. But I have to go to work because work pays for groceries, right? Work means I bring home money. And then we're able to take you to dance lessons, buy groceries. And so I'm trying to make the connection between these two things. So they don't think that it's just every weekend we're able to do these camping trips or whatever it is just because Mm -hmm. we're able to do it because we're going to work. We're making that money. We're choosing to budget this way. And naturally, there's an opportunity cost. Because we spend money going camping, we're not going to go to jump time every weekend, right? And so I'm trying to be very open with them about making money decisions and the reality of that. And then also they have chores. They're five and six. They have things they have to do every day, every week. They get money for that. If they don't do those things, they don't get the money. And then they can spend it however they want. They have to save a little bit of that money. And then they have a little bit of fun money because I think... Again, that connection of if I do, if I fold laundry, put it away, I earn money. If I, and then I can buy a toy. If I don't do that, no toy.
0: You said they save. Where do you have them save in a piggy bank? Do you have a bank accounts for your kids?
1: No, we don't have bank accounts yet. We just have little folders. It's pretty low key right now. I it's mean, the it's a mom and like, dad bank. Yeah, it's like $27. So <laughs> <laughs> it's not like you got
0: to do some more chores around there. I know, it's
1: not like life changing money, but. Yeah, we just have little envelopes. But we put, I mean, we visibly show them like this is the money you earned. Count it out right into savings. This is what you've got. And do
0: they buy into it? They're all about doing chores and getting some money for a toy store trip.
1: They're definitely all about toys and getting them the toy store trip. My son is less interested than my daughter. My daughter's probably like me and that she's fairly mercenary. And if you give her, if you say you're going to give her money, she'll do something. So,
0: so when you walk through a toy store, they don't say, I I want that toy. You say, yeah, well, if you have money in your piggy bank, you can.
1: Yep. Yeah. If they see something, I'll say, do you have the money? Did you bring your money? Well, no. Okay. Well, next time, if you bring your money, we can buy this.
0: It's all about the numbers. (laughs) One of the final takeaways you had that we wanted to discuss today was the perils of financial comparison and how comparing your specific journey to another person can lead to dissatisfaction in your own life. Walk me through what that means to you and how some of your personal experiences or examples of how you've dealt with that.
1: Yeah. Comparison is, oh man, so tough. And I've struggled with it uh, literally forever and I still struggle with it. So I don't have the answers, but what I have found thus far is the problem, there's two major problems with comparison. The first one is it's tends to be in my brain, I assume in a lot of people's brain, one-dimensional. They have a car that's nicer than mine. One dimension. They have a house that's nicer than mine. They have a husband that's more handsome than mine. Not that that's possible, but you know, you get the. <laughs> but it's very one-dimensional. You're thinking about comparing one thing you have to one thing they have. You have no idea what sacrifices or decisions they made to have that thing. So, for example, I worked with a a man at the bank. He drove a Camaro. It was a very nice car. Um, And I was driving my tiny little grandma Lancer. And I was like, man, that's a really nice car. And he goes, oh, yeah. Well, he was, I think, in his 30s. When he was 18, his mom, dad, and brother died in a freak landslide so he lost his entire family but his parents left him all the money right so you actually use that trust fund to buy the camaro i would not change my family for that camaro in any scenario right i don't think he would have either right he would much rather have those people around but if i'd only looked at that one dimension of car to car i would have just said oh man he has such a nice guy like you know what am i doing wrong well really, I'm not doing anything wrong, right? He just had an entirely different life experience. And I think it's the same for so many things. Like even when you look at, there've been studies for millionaires who we're talking like in the 15, 20, 30, 30 million dollar range where they're actually less content with their lives because they're now comparing themselves to billionaires or hundred millionaires. And so they're looking at it and being like, well, I don't have my own jet. And I can't charter every single flight we go on. And I don't have a $800 million yacht, right? And so they're comparing it to this even bigger world of wealth and are even less happy. And so I I just find it so ironic. So the first problem with comparison is, again, it's one dimensional. You have no idea. Maybe that person worked 80 hours a week and lost their marriage to be able to buy that home that's not a choice I'm going to make. So what's there's, it's not a comparison. Then the second thing is it steals your joy. I mean, it immediately takes away all the good in your life and makes you feel lesser, which I just really hate in general. And so it's just not something that I think is really something useful or builds you up in the long run. If it helps galvanize you to do more or better or work harder or be like, wow, like he has a life that I think is really exceptional. I'd like to work hard to get that life that I think is okay. I think that's an okay comparison, but where it's just sort of the mental lashings of why can't I afford that kind of car? I don't think that's valuable.
0: Yeah. It's a social media view on life, right? You see exactly, this window of what they want to show you. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's a happy couple, they're on a trip in Europe, but then they walk away from the f- the photo, the camera, and they're unhappy and they're mm-hmm. bickering. You don't see that. You see the perfect image. Yep. You see the person with the nice watch, the nice sports car. You don't see their unhappy life outside of that. And so yeah. I agree with you. That comparison is most usually not an accurate view on what someone else's life is really like. Yeah. And so it's important that you keep in mind all of that perspective. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely.
0: All right. We are shifting to a few rapid fire questions I have for you.
1: Oh, goody. Okay. What?
0: First one, quick savings tip. What would be your top advice to new people who are saving?
1: Ooh, save anything, even $5. The thing that determines whether or not you're able to retire at 60 is not where you invested it did you use a financial advisor? Did you pay a bunch of fees? Whatever. It is literally yes, no, did you, or did you not save? So just save, just put any money away at any time, even if it's five bucks.
0: Love it. Next one, apart from die with zero, what's another must read financial wisdom book for folks?
1: Oh yeah. Love your life, not theirs by Rachel Cruz is very good. It's a good rethinking, reframing of comparing your life to others. Dave Ramsey's Total Money Makeover is great. I do not love Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I think there are more useful books. Love Your Life, Not Theirs. Is there anything else? Oh, The Millionaire Next Door. Golden. That's actually my number one suggestion, I would say. It basically shows that millionaires are not the people you think they are. They're not the high rollers. They're the people next door who've been (laughs) saving money for decades and drive the same 20-year-old cars and live a really silent, quiet, quality life.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting one because I've heard something about the people who live in the limelight. They're usually the most unhappy, but there's a lot of people who make a lot of money, fly under the radar. They'll never know they're making money.
1: Yeah. The, The whole premise of the book is they started off saying, we want to interview as many millionaires as we can. So they kept bringing in all these like Wall Street guys with fancy thousand dollar suits and they were all broke they all spent all, spend all net- their
0: money right yeah,
1: they, had, <laughs> they had negative net worth the guy was like "Where are all these millionaires they're not here and then they realized it was like the guy wearing blue jeans on you know who runs a shop around the corner and the farmer down the road very low-key guys who guys and women i should say but Men in general, I think, are the ones. This was from the 90s, but they're the ones that they found. That they're like, oh, here are the real millionaires. And they offered them a hundred bucks, which my favorite part is so that they could take the hundred dollars or donate it to charity. And the majority of the true millionaires, these blue jean guys, said, my favorite charity is me <laughs> and would take a hundred dollars, <laughs> which I think is hilarious. It's awesome. Yeah.
0: Aside from the Credit card, North Face, purchase. What was your biggest financial mistake?
1: <sighs> going, honestly, going to a incredibly expensive private college, university. I could have gone to U of I, University of Idaho. It's a great school, had a scholarship, could have gotten the same degree. And it was a, a quarter, I think, maybe an, even a fifth of what Whitworth cost. Love Whitworth. Fabulous professors, fabulous campus. So many good things to say about it, but it was... A massive amount of money, which I would not recommend to my own children, actually. I was paying off student loans for many, many years afterwards, which slowed down my financial progress. And I think if I look back now, the beautiful campus, the kind of showy name and everything, I don't think was worth the pain of having to pay off those loans for that many years. I think I could have gone to U of I, still gotten a great job paid a quarter or a fifth of what I did.
0: I think that's an interesting one because in my viewpoint, nobody's educated about that coming out of high school, right? Unless your parents say, Hey, hold up, hold up. You don't want to spend 50 K a year. Usually you're saying, Oh yeah, I got into Stanford. I live in Idaho. I'm going to go to Stanford and I'm going to pay Mm -hmm. a huge amount of money per year. But you think it's a cool school. You don't really think about the money. You get an easy student loan from the federal government Mm -hmm. And so it leads into this massive pain later on in life with kind of an instant gratification of, Oh, I got into a nice school.
1: I hate it. Yeah. I hate it. That's like my biggest soapbox. Everything I heard was, Oh, that's a good school. Oh, you're so lucky. That's a good school. Do you know how many times I've heard that since I graduated? None, not, not one job interview have they said, Oh wow, that's a really good school. We're going to hire you because of that. No one gives a crap. And it drives me nuts because if you look at Whitworth's campus, Beautiful. It looks like Hogwarts. I mean, it's really stunning. If you look at any college campus, they're beautiful, right? They have these beautiful big new buildings. They spend a ton of money on landscaping. That's our money. That's like you and me off our backs that they get to build these beautiful campuses. And I'm like, geez, Louise, like, no wonder they have such great campuses and buildings and everything. We're paying for it. And so it just, yeah, I get really so boxy really quick about that one.
0: Yeah. The big schools, in my mind, it's really the circle of people you meet that is the biggest value add, but the other pieces of schooling, maybe not worth what you have to spend. True. Investment preference, stocks, bonds, real estate, other avenue, you're diversified, but which one is your favorite?
1: We're young. So stocks all the way, baby. I've got plenty of time to lose and gain fortunes if I have to in the market. Real estate, I do like, but I like it when it's not a massive part of my net worth. And what I mean by that is, we own our house. That's a huge part of my net worth. So I feel like I have plenty of exposure to the real estate market. And, you know, as it gains, I gain. Until our net worth is a little less heavy on real estate and we don't have that much exposure to it, we're probably not going to invest more in real estate. Right now, it's more stocks. We're still a little bit in bonds, but again, we have plenty of time to be in the market to weather the ups and downs. And so I'm pretty much fully invested in the stock market at this point, specifically, uh, you know, low cost ETF funds, index funds, where I get a lot of exposure with very little fees.
0: A lot of diversity there. Next advice to your younger self, 20 year old self. What would you say about financial advice? Jeez,
1: Don't buy the jacket. You still have it? No, I don't. Yeah. I know, but I I can picture it in my mind. I had it for gosh, ten more more years. It, I mean, it lasted, but so did the debt.
0: A little bit of grief and pain there yeah. for life yeah. Every I can time you wear it. it
1: right now, yeah. <laughs> Younger self, I would say, still live your life. Pay off the debt. Get out of debt as quickly as possible. Don't buy. Don't use the credit cards. You can't be responsible with them. But still live a, bit, a little bit of life. We went really hard into the FIRE financial independence world, which I think can, again, like with Daiwa Zero, I think can put your focus too far on the horizon versus enjoying right now. A
0: little bit more balance potentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Next, what is your personal definition of financial freedom? Oh, man.
1: I think being able to make the choice that's right for you and your family. And what I mean by that is you have the financial freedom to walk away from a job that's not healthy for you anymore, or to get the treatment for yourself or your child or whoever needs it, because you can afford it. And because you've planned and saved for these unknown rainy days. I think that's really financial freedom. It's the reduction of stress on your life because you've planned and you can't plan for everything you can't plan for leukemia you can't plan for world downturns whatever world economic downturns but they are made much less painful if you're not scraping by if you have a little bit of a buffer in your life
0: yeah so the ability to make the decision you need to in the moment without Mm -hmm. having to get hung up on other factors maybe yep
1: Having to buy a new set of tires is an emergency when you don't have the money. When I was a teller, that was an emergency. I I didn't have the money to buy new tires. Today, it's a bump in the road. It doesn't even come into my psyche, right? I don't get stressed about it. We have the money. We have the buffer. That's. I'm not going to worry or lose sleep about this thing. And that's really a lot of freedom.
0: Yeah, that's powerful. All right, last one. What is one splurge that you have your eye on? Maybe you've worked it into your budget. Oh, boy. Chase. Well,
1: well, my original splurge was a Chanel bag. Just a $10,000 purse. Wow. I know. It was ridiculous. But I realized that's not realistic for my lifestyle. <laughs> I didn't do that. But we're actually going to go to St. Bart's for our 10 years. St. Bart's is a French Caribbean island. You can only get there by a ferry or private jet. We're not taking a private jet. We're taking the ferry. But still, it's going to be... A pretty expensive trip, I would say. And we're going to splurge on that and we're saving up for it now so we can pay cash for it while we're there.
0: That's awesome. How far in advance did you have to start prepping for that? That saving?
1: Yeah, we're going next May and we've already started. So nice. we had to put some time into it. Yeah.
0: Pretty far in advance. Yeah. Well, as we wrap up here, are there any final thoughts on personal finance or any other pieces of your financial journey that? you'd like to Mm -hmm. outline for our audience?
1: I would just say, just find a plan that you can stick with. It's like a diet. If it's not sustainable, you're not going to stick to it anyway. It's not going to work. You got to find the plan that works for you. And Mm -hmm. that just, again, you're saving a little bit. You're paying down debt. You're consciously involved in your own financial life. I'd also say just stay away from comparison as much as possible. That's going to make you poorer than anything else in your life will. Watching your best friends buy new houses and new cars and go on trips is I still to this day, I see it and I have to take a step back and be like, that's not currently a part of our financial plan. Could be in the future. It's not today. Comparison is going to make you poor quicker than anything. So just try and stay away from it, avoid it as much as possible.
0: I really appreciate you taking the time today to meet and talk about some Of the cool things you've done in your life, some of the plans that you have upcoming. So, looking forward to continuing to see you work towards retiring early, as you mentioned. And, uh, appreciate again the for taking the time today. So, nine and a half years. Wow. I mean, that's cool. Well, it's not that's not, right? not, not 60, right? It's not 60.
1: I'd be yeah. mid 40s, mid to early 40s. No, I'm <laughs> Yeah, no, I appreciate it. Thank you. This has been fun.
0: And to our audience, as always, stay on your path, stay inspired, and above all, stay great. We'll see you soon.